Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Boom. 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 Well, welcome back to Biomechanics on Our Minds. Today, we have a special episode with Dr. Scott Selby, the Chief Executive Officer of Thea Markerless, Director of Research at C-Motion, an Adjunct Professor at Mechanical Engineering at Queen's University, and in the Department of Kinesiology at the University of Massachusetts. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for letting me be on. <laughs> it's an honor. The pleasure is ours. <laughs> Well, we'd like to start with our first question, which we love to start at the very beginning. And could you share with us when you first knew you wanted to be a biomechanist? Yeah, it was pretty clear cut. It was I like was, a gotcha moment. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was visiting a friend of mine at, at Simon Fraser University, and I was early for the meeting. And I was walking down the hallway, and I saw a lecture on sports biomechanics wow. by uh, Dr. Arthur Chapman. And so I just wandered in. Never heard of it. That's amazing. Fantastic. Yeah. What about that lecture made you know that this was for you? Oh, I don't know if I knew it was for me. <laughs> I knew it was <laughs> you just knew it was cool. <laughs> I okay. was, no, I, I was, I'd say a non-competitive athlete. I was average and I walked in <laughs> and this was really early days when people thought that you could simulate behavior and predict mm. better performance. And I went, oh man, I need that. <laughs> uh, and it had nothing to do with not being strong enough, fast enough, or tough enough. But I thought maybe some mathematics, and I'll be okay. Yeah. Uh, but I ended up just volunteering in the lab. I walked in the next day and said, "I'm not working Whoa. right now. Do you mind if I hang around?" And wow. Arthur looked at me and he said, "Well, here's a book. It was a book by Herbert Hatsey. I think it was written around 1977." He says, "Can you understand any of this?" I took it home and I came back and I said, "I think so." He says, Good. <laughs> Then you You're can hired. come back whenever you want to, as long as you want to. And then before I knew it, I was in grad school. That's wow. amazing. And did you continue working with him through grad school? Oh, yeah. No, no, I did my yeah. PhD with him. That's uh, fantastic. It was, but yeah, it was just chance. Like everything else that you're going to hear in this talk, I did this balance between what's me and what's company is a, it's a bit strange. But, but every time it comes to something about me, it'll be just by chance something happens. <laughs> But you listen to the chance, which I think is, yes. is, is the you part. Opportunities. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, walk us through a little bit about your transition to industry. So now you have both roles in academia and industry, but we're really curious why you decided on a path in industry. Well, it, was, it wasn't the first time I tried. I started a company or I guess co-founded a company when I was a grad student. It never amounted to much. I'm not sure anybody's heard of it. But we actually got as far as a product. Um, wow, that's pretty good. <laughs> well, I, but but it was a, a, a small market. It was we were there was a couple of grad students working in what they called cananthropometry in those days, which is probably just anthropometry now. And it was all a bunch of measures of of fitness and and skin fold and body fat and oh, wow. uh, so I wrote software, oh. and then I got a really cool postdoc in Switzerland and I left. <laughs> um, 
But the software actually sold for about 20 years, I was told. I didn't find that out until 15 years later that they were still selling wow. it. Wow. 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 Was uh, which shows you how much royalties measuring? I got, how, how good I was in <laughs> negotiating it. <laughs> um, the, the second time was when I, I guess I went as a scientist to the National Institutes of Health. I had the opportunity to work there. And as, as many people know because of the podcast, I actually went there to study voice disorders and, and modeling the human larynx. But I spent four years there. And it was at a time when government employees were not allowed to write a grant. Now I think you're not allowed to be awarded a grant, but you can write it to show that you could score. Oh. Um, <laughs> if you end up after many years of postdoc and work as a staff scientist and you get a job interview that says, well, how many grants have you got? And you say, none. It doesn't go very well. Ah, okay. so, which, is, which is why they changed the rules. So NIH employees, and they can write and they can get their grant reviewed by study section. And they can get their score and they can say, no, I haven't had one, but I am capable of it here. Oh. So I, I left the NIH. Um, I had three, well, I left it after three interviews. Let's say three very different tier levels of university. And, and one of them said, I, I don't even understand what you do. And the other one said, no, you're probably not going to stay. And the other one said, you have no grants. Hmm. <laughs> I'm in a bit of trouble here. I better do something. I uh, found a... I knew some somebody, a small company in Rockville, Maryland, but they were starting up a new company. So I was employee number one. So I quit. I, I left the NIH and thought I'll be employee number one. That surely that's going to be interesting. It was fun. But as with many startups, it starts to diverge. Mm -hmm. And after a year and a half, I went, well, this isn't what I'm doing. <laughs> um, mm. it, it's going in a slightly different direction than I wanted. No hard feelings, just I got to move. So I was applying for jobs, obviously. And I went to the to the NIH, to a, not to the lab that I'd worked in. I, I went to someone for a reference letter and I, I showed up and it was Dr. Steve Stanhope's lab at the NIH. And I said, I can you write me a reference letter? This work is more in line with what you're doing than who I was working with. Mm. And he said, hmm, ever thought of starting a company? And well, what do you mean? I said, well, I got this great offer for you. We're, we have software that we've been developing. Tom Kepler started writing software in 1984. Oh, my gosh. Um, but they were releasing it as freeware. It's called Move 3D from the NIH. But the NIH isn't in the software business. Hmm. And it was at a time when technology transfer was encouraged at the NIH. And encouraged so much that it was possible to apply for a grant, an SBIR grant from the extramural program to fund the technology transfer from the intramural program. So Steve said, well, here, here's the deal. I've got no money. I maybe can give you a small contract. You can write a grant. It'll probably take a year to find out if you get it, but then we'll see what happens. <laughs> and <laughs> I, went, I went home. So this, this guy without, without a job and a family and my parents were visiting. My dad said, Aww. why not? Go for it. Well, yeah. So then I did some teaching at Catholic University and I did some subcontract work and I did bits and pieces until that first grant was awarded. Oh, I don't know what you, would have happened if the it. grant wasn't awarded. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we don't need to think well, about that. <laughs> like, but that was, that was a long time ago. So, so I got into it, not just by chance, as I said at the beginning here, just <laughs> circumstances were right. And I was the right person at the right time for them. And the NIH was encouraging. They funded us 
right past the initial release of the software. So we had probably eight or nine years of funding from the NIH in, wow. in bits and pieces. So I'm very grateful to the NIH. And, I, and CMOSHA still exists. So, so now the question is, this talk was supposed to be about Thea, and I haven't even mentioned Thea yet. <laughs> um, it's so, we got, it's so, yeah, yeah, it's helpful to get that background and and learn where you're coming from and kind of the story behind it. And now I'm excited for this, this right. build up to how Thea evolved then from that. <laughs> but even to see your entrepreneurial pattern, right? Even in grad school, you were writing software and doing, you know, and, and being entrepreneurial. So it's kind of cool to keep well, seeing your pattern. When I think of entrepreneur, I think of something big that happening. I don't think of someone just making a living. So it's kind of it's kind of weird. I I view it as someone just finding a way to make a living from their own stuff, from their own resources. I don't know. Thea happened because a couple of grad students, really. One grad student in particular, Marcus Brown, who's currently currently the president of Thea. We were doing some collaborative work on some markerless tracking in Major League Baseball with Kinetrax. But they were full up in, in, with baseball. They were doing really well. And um, Marcus said, but what about the rest of the world? Mm-hmm. Why can't can we do something big? And we eventually agreed that we would create the markerless mm-hmm. to build a general solution for markerless tracking and see where, where it went. And we're still trying. So it was, I guess, just I've been working with marker-based tracking for my career. Way back from when you put tape on with high-speed film <laughs> back in the 80s um, and built your own digitizer and you built, you built your own uh, force platform um, recording software. But it was exciting. So we did it for a couple of years under C-Motion. So C-Motion was funding it because we had no idea mm, if, yeah. if we could do something that, because people had tried before. People mm-hmm. had tried markerless before. Mm-hmm. And it never quite fulfilled his promise. Mm. And so there's no way to know that um, we would this time. I, I, ironically, right at the, kind of the beginning of this, I, I wrote a textbook chapter with Stephen Cadavan on markerless tracking. And there's just about, there's not one thing in that whole chapter that we do now. Wow. <laughs> That's science the techno- though, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The technology changed so fast. I think everybody knows now that they, they've heard it, but. As soon as there was enough computing power, that deep neural networks could actually solve a problem in a reasonable amount of time. They demonstrated that an algorithm could recognize handwriting and license plates on cars and (laughs) recognize people, not particularly well, but they could recognize features really quite well. Yeah. And then someone published the obvious. Well, if you can recognize features, you can recognize features on the human body too. Yeah. And do you think that was the biggest barrier to markerless motion capture catching on previously? Or or what do you think about this time that really pushed it's it? Trying to to do, it's trying to do something different. Mm. And there's still software out there. The early software was all registration-based. It was trying to get some silhouette off the body. Mm. So you, you, you find some way to distinguish the subject from the background from silhouettes. Mm. And if you had multiple silhouettes, you could do you could carve out the space. You just say, mm-hmm. what could each camera see? Mm-hmm. And anything that wasn't the body would just kind of peel away as if it was carving. And it, it left you with this blobby kind of figure that was more or less the outline of the body. The, the problem was it really couldn't deal with concavities very well. You couldn't see through things. It couldn't deal with one hand over top of the other. 
Um, oh. Had trouble finding if your hand was was too bent or fingers too bent, it would see it as a single object. So it 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 struggled. Hmm. Um, this feature based approach is entirely different. We're not interested in really the surface at all. Right. We are more key points. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's just key point detection. Um, mm -hmm. There's some trivial bits to it, and that is if you choose really easy key points like the joint. If I say I'm going to choose the center of a joint, right? Doesn't matter what angle you look at a picture of of the of a leg, you know where the center is. <laughs> so so it's pretty straightforward to build up a neural network that can recognize joint centers. Mm. But that's not biomechanics. Joint centers aren't biomechanics. Joint centers are connect the dots. Biomechanics is, you know, six degrees of freedom. Right. You translate yeah. and you rotate. So if you've only got joints, you don't have 3D biomechanics. So right. how do you right. get how do you get the other features? And then you have to live with the fact that the neural network expects a, a, a feature because you're training it. Right. I mean, right. I think everybody's kind of got this idea that. It, you, they know that you have to train it. They know that you have to take pictures or videos, lots and lots and lots of them. Right. And you have to pick out a bunch of features on the body. And once you get past the obvious features, then you're trying to find features on the surface. Not quite random, yeah. but features that you can do reliably over and over. We started out thinking it was like markers. Could we just find a virtual marker? So we'd put markers mm -hmm. wherever you would normally put markers for tracking. Yeah, that wasn't really particularly good. <laughs> Because it wasn't it wasn't particularly reliable, right? And so so you have to be a little bit more clever. And you get old timers like me going, I know what to do with markers. So let's start with markers. So we'll replace <laughs> markers virtually. It's not quite that easy. But anyway, so you you get markers on the body, and like marker based tracking, the more markers you have, the more complexities in the model. Mm -hmm. And so so you build up this set by hand annotating images. You build up a set of features and you train a network. And our next release is about, I think it's 81 features because we're still holding some back. Oh, wow. So that means in every image, 81 features have been identified. Wow. Oh. And that's enough features to build a model that you can do biomechanics with. Mm. Wow. But it's, really not like any optimization problem that I grew up with. Mm. And when I grew up, every time you added a variable to the optimization, if you had one more variable to the objective function, you run the risk of local minima and you run the risk mm. that it won't solve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In these neural networks, every time you add a feature, every feature gets better. Yeah. Yeah. There's never a downside. Yeah. <laughs> Every time you add a feature, it gets better. Every time you add a new image of a, a new person in a new pose, mm -hmm. every feature gets better. Right. right. It learns more. Yeah. And that's just such a foreign concept to me. <laughs> <laughs> how, how can you make the problem more complex, but then have it easier to solve? Mm. Yeah. In principle. Yeah. <laughs> So I'll get question. to some of the, I'll get to, I'll get to some of the the butts <laughs> a little later. Um, yeah. but I should I should move on. <laughs> start all of this. No, no, no. I yeah, think it's, it's super yeah. interesting and like it's it's important to go sort of and I think a lot of our audience loves to think about things at this level 
but I think just to like bring it back and kind of pull all together, all the things that we've talked about, maybe it'd be cool to talk about, you know, what the bread and butter of Theia markerless motion capture is, right? It's like software to do markerless motion capture, but, you know, under that hood is, is this neural network that you're talking about and this training data that you have yeah. curated. So what's the, so um, what is the, uh, yeah. <laughs> the secret. <laughs> There's yeah, not really a exactly. secret. What, what is, what is, yeah, what is, is it? it what is together. it that makes it special? Exactly. What is yeah, it that makes yeah. it special? Just the sheer volume of data. Mm. Just the sheer volume. Um, and you've collected that as a company on we your own. We have. Well, and, and a lot of it's um, some of it's available publicly. Only it's the images that oh, wow. are interest us. Well, because well, some of the data sets are available. Um, and we just don't use any of the features that that they provide. We just we redid mm. them all. But they have more than five hundred thousand different people that have been annotated. Wow, that yeah, is... it's not a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> it's not a little bit. Five hundred thousand um, people. Wow. And are there people? There are people in all different settings and places. And then you're getting these yeah. videos, and then as a company annotating them using that data then to train. Uh, yeah. And re- and mostly it's pictures. So there's two parts to it. I mean, the, the pictures is where it started mm-hmm. because that's how everybody else did it. Using, using 3d data. Well, you first you had to get, so you had 3d data. <laughs> yeah. So you had to use all these 2d pictures so you could get some 3d, get 3D pose. 3D. Yeah. <laughs> and now you can use 3d pose gotcha. as an additional training part of it. And it's sort of obvious but not really the quality assurance. So, so you ask a later question, I'm going to bring it in now because now's the right time. Um, failure. Yeah. You asked about, but, you, but I'm going to take it as failure as a, a company, not so much failure as me, um, a failure that we resolved, but new data was important. We just weren't careful enough about the quality assurance because we really wanted to know if we could get to the 3D pose. So we were so intent on getting to the 3D pose that we rushed. So the first 130,000 images were just, let's get this done. We got we to have it done or we're not going to find 3D pose. Mm. Yeah. And the quality assurance is really hard. Yeah. Especially with everybody's. That well, it's one of the big criticisms. If yeah. people annotated manually. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's the source of your data set. Mm-hmm. How could it possibly be reliable? Right. Mm-hmm. Your network is only and, as good as the data you're training on, right? Right. Yeah. So the, the quality assurance process had to get a lot more complicated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Interesting. And so all that original data, that rush to see where we were going, is we had to throw away. Wow. Wow. Um. I mean, throw away, redo, redo. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, the same. But all that away. work, you know, there was, <laughs> but there was work. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But you can still use it to say, well, where where could we have gone wrong? Mm-hmm. What is it? What is it that that, that went wrong? Why, why would we throw it away? What what were we missing here? Mm-hmm. What what part of the quality assurance wasn't good enough? Mm. Yeah. And so the process now takes a little bit longer to annotate, but we don't throw away data so much anymore. <laughs> uh, and, we, and we have I mean, as, I mean, we have as many as 11 people annotating at any one time. 
Wow. So it's a it's a it's a huge commitment. And when I say 11 people, it's 11 people, 40 hours a week. Wow. Um, That's a huge commitment to data. Yeah. And we're now four years into this data collection. So it's it's not going to. I mean, someone else can do it, too, but it's going to take time. Mm, um, wow. A few things that have jumped out. Synthetic data is not all that useful for real scenes. Oh. Mm. So you got you got to you got to do the grunt work. Yeah. So you're saying yeah, data a, that you need real real images, and when you're saying synthetic data, you're saying you know potentially creating animations or some fake images or videos to use. Yeah, or, or just manipulating images even. Right. Like manipulating take a yeah. person and, and, yeah. and put them upside down in a yeah, different environment. Yeah, it's not helping. Like, yeah. Somehow the algorithms know that that's not real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it takes time. And that's one of the, the, the magic. The other part of magic is quality, quality assurance is critical. The other one is knowing what data to ignore, what features mm-hmm. to ignore. It doesn't sound obvious, but Everything we want is is to be accurate. So we do it with, you know, lots of cameras. Typically eight cameras are used to record the scene. The neural network is is an an inference machine. Mm -hmm. And so for any pose, it's going to infer every feature you've trained it to do. So it will guess at a feature that it can't see. So you will come out of your neural network from one pose and say, here are all the features. And some of them are unreliable. And if they're really unreliable, fine. You can ignore it. Because when you infer something in statistics, there's a number. <laughs> you got a number saying, how, how, how much do I believe this location? If even the algorithm doesn't believe it, like, you don't want it. Mm-hmm. But what if the algorithm's lukewarm on it? And you have eight cameras and three or four of them have really good views of the scene. Mm-hmm. And the other four don't. Well, if you tried to figure out which cameras had the best view of it, you'd be an old-time biomechanist like me, and you'd have really, really slow algorithms. They go around <laughs> saying, "Where could the person be, and yeah. what can I see?" Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> that would take forever. <laughs> uh, so you have to find clever ways. And the problem is, as the network gets better, even the bad solutions are getting pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so with with every improvement in the algorithm, it gets harder to know which data to ignore. It's it's really a challenging problem to say for an algorithm to say, yeah. I really really like that, and I really really don't like that. And these ones here, I'm lukewarm about, but I'm pretty sure to, I want to ignore. And so, when you get past the simple part of the neural network, which is find a feature, to do I believe that feature? And so it's it's just experience, more and more experience. And you keep looking at it and you go, surely the camera knows it can't see that. <laughs> surely it knows. Because <laughs> uh, yeah. these things seem to know everything, but yeah, they don't. <laughs> Thea Markerless is a young startup that is revolutionizing motion capture in biomechanics by harnessing machine vision and artificial intelligence to provide incredibly accurate markerless motion capture software that's simple, powerful, and versatile. To find out more, follow Thea, 
That's T-H-E-I-A on Twitter or go to theamarkerlist.ca. We ask ourselves very often in, you know, invalidating any kind of tool, like what is good enough and how do you decide what's good enough? You know, like (laughs) you've got, and you've got years of experience in trying to figure out what is good enough. So I'm just, we're just wondering what that process is. No, I want to just crawl under the table right now. (laughs) That's just, this is a minefield. Um, (laughs) It seems obvious for some of the things where like, okay, well, that's clearly not a joint or that's not a key, the key point we were going for. Those Mm -hmm. things seem unacceptable, but then how do you, yeah, you said like kind of those closer, more ambiguous examples. Good enough is based, it's really wishy-washy answer. Good enough is based on the question you're asking Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and your intent, Mm -hmm. why you asked it. What what, what were you trying to learn from the data? Mm -hmm. Um, I'll relay a story. I won't say his name, but early on in, in C-Motion, I, we were hyper-focused because marker-based tracking has some challenges. And we were really, really hyper-focused on figuring out how to calibrate the volume well. Mm. So we weren't camera manufacturers, but we were the end result. The data all ended up right. sitting in visual <laughs> 3D. So we were supposed to figure it out. So a little bit hyper-focused on, on calibration. And defining reference frames and, and defining all this stuff. And, mm. and I walked into to a, to a laboratory of a, of a good scientist, very good scientist. And, and I looked at his system. I said, how do you calibrate that? He says, I don't. So what, what, do, you, what do you mean you don't? He says, yeah, well, I don't have to be accurate. And I looked what? at him and I went, surely you don't mean that. <laughs> surely you don't mean that. Um, so we talked a little bit and I walked away going, I don't think he knows what he's doing. <laughs> that seems uh, fair. I, I didn't say anything. And and then a couple of days later, we were sitting at the at the student pub on campus and he comes up to me and he said, you did forget to ask me a question, didn't you? And I said, well, I don't know. He, did, he said, you didn't even ask me what my question was. And I went, oh. He said, my experimental protocol only needed to know if the finger went left or right. Didn't need to know how far. Mm. Didn't need to know from where to where. Mm. It only needed to know left or right. Mm. So tell me how calibrating would change the answer for me. Mm. So it's all in the question you're asking. And Mm -hmm. in biomechanics now, we have, there are tools to measure the movement of bones fairly accurately. They're not that common. You can use biplane video radiography. So C-Motion has a product that that we call dynamic stereo x-ray that can track a bone in 3D given video radiography data. Right. And the gold standard for that was implanting beads into the bone and then tracking, doing the registration algorithms used. X-rays only have two cameras, so it's a slightly different marker list. And comparing to bead tracking. Now, beads don't move in the bones. Beads don't move 10 years later (laughs) in the bones. So if someone has beads implanted, and we have had subjects come in. Wow. One in particular had beads implanted 10 years ago. They're still there. Wow. They don't bother them. They just sit on the bone. So there's no soft tissue artifact. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing moving. Guarantee that one. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
So that's that was the comparison for X-ray. And when you look at it, and I can show you charts and stuff, but it's kind of a millimeter in accuracy and yeah. far less than a millimeter repeatability. We think it measures a bone. Mm -hmm. If you can measure to a millimeter, you can talk about the excursion of cartilage or you can talk about moment arms mm -hmm. because they're all considerably bigger than a millimeter. Mm -hmm. And so you have enough accuracy to answer those questions. Now, mm -hmm. the volume of a next of a biplanar video radiography system is the size of a basketball. Right. So you Not can much. do it. Yeah. Motion you do a joint. <laughs> you yeah. do a joint. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And sometimes the other leg gets in the way if it's actually walking data. So it, it's while accurate, it's just a, a little tiny snapshot right. of the whole body and when what's going on. But still, there were some things we learned. How do companies progress? You asked me about established companies. I, I, I know nothing about other established companies. I know something about CMOSHN, though. <laughs> <laughs> the established companies constantly have to look for something new. But it tends to be just a little bit new. Right. Not mm. dramatically mm. different, just a little bit new. <laughs> so we had a, a project that we were talking with Emo Todorov, University of Washington, and I was, I was sitting down at a conference with him. And I was talking about soft tissue artifact. And for those in the audience who don't know, um, markers attached to the skin, or worse mm. yet, to clothing, don't follow oh, the God. bone. Don't follow the bone. Yeah. They do whatever they want to do, which is, I guess, okay, because we wouldn't want our skin rigidly attached to the bone. But if you knew how markers moved on the skin relative to the bone, if you knew that, is there a principled way to remove that artifact from the post? Mm -hmm. And the answer is yes. The answer is, it is possible to just take a statistical approach to this and, mm -hmm. and use uh, Bayesian inference, where the pose that you get is kind of your prior, so you assume is correct, but you have this other stuff. You have constraints on the system, which is a movement, and there's a principal way to get rid of it. And so I thought, oh, finally, finally, we can deal with this In motion darn soft tissue yeah. artifact. Yeah. yeah. We, can, we can deal with it. So we got a grant from the NIH for it. Well, the grant was really predicated on a conversation. I seem to have a lot of conversations over beer. I was sitting at a meeting with, Dr. Scott, with <laughs> Scott Tashman, <laughs> and I was telling him my dilemma. I said, all we have to do is figure out how markers move relative to the bones, and then we can deal with this. And he said, well, I have this biplane video radiography system, and I usually put markers on my subjects. So you can measure how the markers moving on the relative to the bone. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. So several years later, well, at least one or two years later, we discovered that it took a long time to get x-ray data processed. <laughs> um, so much time, in fact, that we would never get to enough data to do the statistics for how markers move. So wow. what we needed was new software. That's where our DSX software comes from. Went to the government and said, yeah, this was a great idea of ours, but we just can't get enough data. So we're going to have to write the software to get it. Mm -hmm. They went, okay. So then we got more money and I mean, it sounds flippant, but we used every last penny of that trying to solve this problem. <laughs> we did get to a product. DSX is a, a fantastic product, but it doesn't have a market because there's just 
aren't that many biplanar video radiography systems in the world. Mm. So you asked earlier about a, a kind of a corporate failure. In some sense, BSX is a failure, mm. which is such a shame. The technology can measure bone like no other technology. In dynamic situations, it can measure stuff. It works. The software works. The software was developed, it's been tested, it's been validated, it all works. And now you as a company have a product mm. you can't make money on. Yeah. So none of the real failure points matter a bit because we didn't actually fail at any of the in-between bits. Mm. Yeah. What we failed at was making money. <laughs> <laughs> So sometimes failure doesn't look like failure because it wasn't a failure of anything you did other yeah. than the assumption that orthopedic surgeons really should look inside a knee and see what's going on <laughs> before they do surgery. Yeah. That sounds so trite, but don't they? <laughs> Shouldn't, they? <laughs> Shouldn't they look inside if they can? <laughs> it's just not got there yet. So, so my guess is it's the failure is just a failure of time. It's going to take time. So, just, so we're, we'll nurse this software along we'll get time. So, okay, now we get back yeah, to this problem. Yeah. We Even when we write this software, you got to create this so great software, we start to model, try to model the movement of markers mm -hmm. on the skin. Mm -hmm. And we just can't get enough data. Yeah. You just can't do enough experiments because markers move because the bone just moves under the skin because the markers move because the muscle moves under the skin. So if you so just that moment you were like, thigh, let's just do markerless. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, of course. But if you, contract, if you just stand there and contract your thigh, your markers will move up. Right. And if you jump. Yeah. yeah. You breathe. Yeah. <laughs> so for every circumstance and every body type and every movement, you'd have to have enough data. What did a proof of concept do was show us that mm. we compare the results of marker-based bone with, with real bone and we get two centimeters of error in the location of the of the joint mm. or more. And that's a lot. <laughs> mm. Two centimeters is a lot. But you got to keep two centimeters in your mind because not only is it two centimeters of error movement within the joint, you still had to place it too. So you've got an error in oh, placing in that placing. marker if it's yeah. a marker mm -hmm. that you cared about for your mm -hmm. coordinate systems. So why go through that? Well, we spent a lot of time on soft tissue artifact. We spent a lot of time saying if we modeled one marker, we could reduce from two centimeters to like three or four millimeters. Mm -hmm. Can try. We don't have that much data. One marker. So we know it'll work. And with a big sigh, we stop working on it. Because <laughs> you can't get enough data. <laughs> it all comes down to the data. But you're about to ask me, how we're going to validate markerless. Yeah, I think that is everybody the does. question. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I think it's more of the question of, you know, our gold standard has always been motion capture. And it's hard because how do you even validate motion capture? You know, you're talking about using x-rays and things like that. And then we're using markerless and comparing them to motion capture, which might not necessarily be accurate or as accurate as we think it is. So the question is, not just validation, but in terms of being the new or, you know, in the future, potentially the new gold standard for motion mm -hmm. capture, like what would that take? So which of, if you consider accuracy as in mm -hmm. how close you are to some real solution, 
mm-hmm. and reliability, mm-hmm. which is the consistency with which you measure something. Right. So if you continually measure the same thing, you could be reliable, but wrong. Right. Mm. With markerless, we're really relying on reliability. So we can do a test against marker-based. And 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 I was involved with, with one, well, with some studies here at, at Queen's University. And we made a mistake. Let's go back to a new mistake. <laughs> <laughs> we thought you could do an experiment and put markers on and track markerless too with the markers on and just compare them. The experiment, though, is set up biased towards marker-based. It's whatever experimental setup you had that your your marker-based system works with and the lighting you have and the Mm. volume that you have is the one you got to use. And we thought that's fine. And then you you do this this test and you have two systems that have their own internal reference frames. Even intending to be the same anatomical planes, how could they possibly be the same? So do you force both data sets to have the same reference frame? Well, I went back and forth over that for months and thought, well, which one would I pick? In the end, I couldn't decide which one to pick. And I went, maybe we'll just let the systems decide. And if the errors are small, we won't worry about it. So that's what we did. We didn't force them to have the same reference frame. Mm. Now, it takes a long time to do a marker-based experiment. Yeah, But we know that it's not particularly reliable across sessions. So it really was not useful to do only one study. We mm-hmm. should have done three different sessions across different weeks, possibly mm-hmm. different people putting markers on yeah, to get totally. the actual variability in mm-hmm. the marker-based data and say, does markerless fall within all of that? Mm. Right. Well, <laughs> that, and I think that's when strength of mark, right? Like markerless, even if it is wrong, it's hopefully going to be wrong in the same <laughs> yeah, way. The same. Right? Well, and that's what we're, Which that's what we're counting on. That, people. <laughs> and that's yeah. measurable. That is yeah. absolutely and measurable. Exactly. You can bring exactly. them back three times and, and look at it. Mm-hmm. That, and that study was done, but it's also possible because of the amount of data collection. So we, we still work with the people at Queens and they needed some data for some statistics and part of a, a grant that we're an industrial partner on. So mm-hmm. They went out last week. It was a little bit cold, so they didn't want to have too, too many data collections. Those are long ones. Yeah. So they had three two-hour sessions. Took the cameras out, set them up, recorded. And that three sessions, so six hours of data collection, 105 subjects without trying. Just the students walking down the street. Some of them wow. carrying their backpacks. As they tell me, one woman wanted to eat her hot dog while she walked through. She didn't have a lot of time. <laughs> they got 105 subjects. Some wow. in long coats, some in short coats. And not only that, did they collect it all last week? It's analyzed. Wow. So you can ask different questions. We can ask That's questions amazing. about reliability with yeah. markerless. Yeah. Yeah. And look wow. how quickly you can so do an experiment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. We're starting to run out of time here. But in a sentence or two, what has been like the most exciting or I think like most surprising thing that you've been able to capture with markerless motion capture? Has anyone used it in a way that you weren't expecting? Not really, but <laughs> I'll qualify that. And well, not really, because the market that we we initially entered was the market I already mm-hmm. knew. So I know what yeah, people can do with markers. Sense. So nobody's come up yet with something that was, ooh, never thought of that. Mm. However, there are some things that are very cool. So 
there's a, a woman on a trampoline. We put it on social media. You can't see in the podcast, but you can go look at her at our, <laughs> at our, at our page, either Twitter or LinkedIn. We were able to capture someone on a trampoline. Wow. And awesome. you can't do that with markers because they land on them. And the markers fly everywhere. Oh. <laughs> so you can't really do a marker-based approach and do this. So it's just something that can't be done. But what's exciting is you can collect data and while hopefully minimizing this, I don't think it's called the Hawthorne effect, that you're affected by the fact that they're collecting data on you, you could collect patients in the hallway going to the to the doctor. Yeah. yeah. When they're not, they don't know that they're being tracked. They'll know they'll be tracked in the hospital that day. They just don't know what's going to be when they're walking to when the they're lab, in the hallway. When yeah. in the lab. Right. You can track the other team in sports. You can't put a marker on the opposing team. They're not gonna let you. <laughs> They can't stop you with video. So you get a full context for all of the data you're collecting. Mm. So the surprising bit to me is how hard it is to get video images that are really good. Yeah. <laughs> That's been the most surprising. Mm. Not, not the movements. It's, it's really, really hard to get good video images of a big volume. Mm-hmm. When we started this, I didn't think video was going to be the real problem. Video is the hardest part. Mm. Wow. And for learning. Uh, wow. But surprising, what could what are people going to do with it? I don't know. Um, <laughs> because sports wants it. They don't know what to do with it either. Yeah. They're all trying to determine. Because if you're in professional sports, what you really want to do is win a game. Right. That is your optimal. <laughs> <laughs> not not yeah, anything exactly. else we can do with the biomechanics. You want to win a game. <laughs> so, so how does this win you games is an unknown right now. There are hints, of course, but most people won't tell you what they are. I think it's just, it's hard to ask a scientific question, certainly a clinical question, that probably doesn't require thousands of subjects. Mm. Yeah. If you're trying to study injury, one of the big problems statistically, and don't quote me on it. If you have a really, really big population of people that didn't get hurt and a teeny tiny population of people who did, mm. the statistics in comparing them aren't actually that good. <laughs> mm, right. So if you come out and do a, a big cross-sectional study and say, we did tests X, Y, and Z, now that we've done them, we can predict injury in 70% of the people who got injured. And there's nothing wrong with the statistics, but they're group statistics. So an individual, one person walks into your room, your 17-year-old daughter, you guys don't have one, but walks in the room and, and is she susceptible to injury? And if you do one snapshot, one set of tests, that's 60 to 70%, know. Yeah. you don't know anything. Yeah. Right. You don't know anything until you've measured her in different contexts many times over. So what Markerless allows you to do is test the whole soccer team every week every week mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. non-invasively <laughs> yeah non-invasively on the practice field exactly mm-hmm. so just in during one of their drills you capture their drills and it means you can build up enough of a data set that you might actually be able to predict that's exciting yeah that is really exciting. Yeah, we've really enjoyed learning about the opportunities in markerless motion capture from you. And it's it's really exciting, I think, to see some of these visions become mm-hmm. a reality with Thea and, and, you know, from the amazing data set that you're collecting and being able to annotate that and to the models that you're creating and these new applications. And, and I think 
being mm-hmm. able to use biomechanics to inform the health of people and injury risk of people is really is really exciting for the field. So we're really grateful for you for sharing all of that with us and for being on the show. And we're looking forward to seeing what's next from Thea. Just to let people know, resistance to change is different with age. So Thea has told, I think, 80 systems to research labs this year. The mean age of our customers is 38. Wow. So Markerless is going to, Encourage people to yeah. ask different kinds of questions and the and the kinds of people most likely to change the research questions are the people just developing the research question right. for the first time. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually going to note that and how over your career, like you've seen such a growth and change. And it's really cool. I think for us as young investigators, like thinking about, I think sometimes we take for granted or I take for granted the place where I'm at in history and like seeing this vision and the technology that can actually allow that vision to become a reality that you've mm-hmm. outlined is actually incredible yes. and kind of wakes me up again. And it inspires me to like rethink my own research question. So I totally see what you're saying. It's really neat. And and the very last thing about the, I can, everybody knows it. The core people at the are all younger than two of my kids. So <laughs> some days it's exhausting. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. And if people wanted to learn more about Thea, what's the best way to do that? Oh, just send an email to info. There will be someone willing to give an online demo to anyone who wants an online demo. And if we ever get to do real demos, then we will. But right now, anybody who wants an online demo can have one. Yeah. we Hannah and I had an online demo uh, with our lab, and that was really exciting and cool. So we'll encourage yeah, others, if they're interested, to it's definitely reach out to yeah. get a demo of what Theo can do. It's really exciting. And and it was surprising to me. I think I've used a lot of different mm-hmm. algorithms for doing markerless motion capture and have been limited, I think, in the types of movements that, that it can that can actually predict on. And with you, mm-hmm. I was pleasantly surprised at how good it works. And it's really exciting. Thank you. And it's getting better. And it keeps getting better. And it keeps getting better. I know. (laughs) Every day, those 11 (laughs) annotators are going. That's right. It's getting better. (laughs) Thanks so much, Scott. Thanks, Scott. This was great. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks very much. Thanks again to Thea Markerless for sponsoring this episode. Make sure to connect with Biomechanics on Our Minds by following us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at BiomechanicsOOM. You can also check out our website and shop at biomechanicsonourminds.com. Thank you so much for listening. And if you like Boom and find value in it, make sure to share Boom with a friend or colleague or someone else that you think would enjoy it. Bye.